Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? NRAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. Today we have a special guest. He is not only a Terranaut, but an astronaut as well. Dr. Dave Williams joined Canada's astronaut program with the class of 1992 and eventually flew on two space shuttle missions, STS-90 and STS-118. But in between those stints on orbit, he spent his career on the ground and beneath the ocean, working to find ways to keep those who travel in space safer healthier, and more effective. And that certainly makes him a Terranaut in my books. Dr. David Williams, welcome to Terranauts. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So so uh, you were a doctor long before you were uh, an astronaut. Was that, was that what your ambition was when you were growing up, was medicine? I think my interest in medicine really started when I was told I couldn't be an astronaut. And... Uh, <laughs> As a result of that, remember this is the early 60s, and in those days, Canada did not have a human space program. You know, we're the third country in the world to send satellites into space, but the human element of space flight uh, didn't exist in Canada. So I was told, you can't be an astronaut, and then I dreamt of becoming an aquanaut, so I started scuba diving at age 12. And as a result of, yeah, with, with that experience, I had to learn all about the physiology of the human body. So I became very interested in physiology, life science, and medicine and ultimately went on to study uh, neurobiology, neurophysiology in medical school at McGill University. So how long were you a doctor before the opportunity to actually become a Canadian astronaut uh, appeared? Oh, it was about 10 years. Yeah. And and so you were still interested in space, though? So when you saw the opportunity, you decided you now now they couldn't say no? Well, what's that famous phrase? You know, I put it on the back burner. When I was in university, you're so busy studying. And I remember in 1983 with the first Canadian astronaut selection, I totally missed it because I was in my final year of medical school. I was studying for final exams and things. But what that did is it catalyzed that dream, that dream that I had when I was a young kid. And now it's possible. So I was waiting for the next Canadian astronaut selection, which took place in 1992. But I was ready. So, so uh, you know, there are actually a, a, a lot of people who've been through that process, but for, for those who haven't survived the process right till the end, what, what's it like to be part of an astronaut selection process? You know, it's a tremendous honor, and people talk about the number of applicants we had back in 1992. It was over 5,000. The reason why I remember that number is we had 600 applications from kids less than 10 years of age, which is a fantastic <laughs> statistic, right? There yes. is nothing wrong with getting your application in early. But anyway, right. uh, I went through that process. It took about six months to get to the final stage, and they had 20 of us go to Ottawa. And I would say that any one of those 20 would have done an incredible job representing Canada in space. For me, it was just an honor being there and uh, a dream come true when I was selected to become an astronaut. 
Right. So, so you were selected in 1992, but it was actually a number of years before you, you got to step on board an actual spacecraft that was leaving the planet. Um, but that doesn't mean there weren't some interesting things going on in, in your career as an astronaut. What, what were you doing between the time you were selected and the time you first flew? Well, the decade of the 90s was a really interesting decade. You remember in 92, we were hired to help build and live and work on the International Space Station. And shortly after we were hired, there was a vote in Congress and the space station program almost did not get through. It was approved by one vote. So here we are in 92 with the space station, this dream. And yet by the year 2000, the space station is built and we're sending the first crew. So it was an amazing decade of flights in space. And uh, I started training um, with Julie Payette and Mike McKay in Canada. Chris went down to uh, train as a mission specialist with Mark Garneau. And uh, the remainder of us, we stayed in uh, Canada. We're training in Canada. And of course, the plan uh, after my first year of training was to try and get a long duration flight on the Mir space station. And the Canadian Space Agency, we're very excited about that. The goal was to have Bob Thirsk as the prime astronaut. I was going to be the backup. And we went over to Russia to try and negotiate this mission. Things were going pretty well, but at the end of the day, it turned out that the cost of the mission was basically prohibitive. We didn't have the budget to enable us to do that. So we regrouped from that and actually had a simulation at uh, the uh, DCIM facility, or which is now known right. as uh, DRDC in Toronto. We had a simulation in a hyperbaric chamber. So it was uh, uh, an interesting way to follow up the dream of having long duration flight on the Mir space station. And how long was the mission at DCIM? That one was seven days, and uh, it still was a very valuable opportunity. True to form, we invited uh, many international collaborators. We had life scientists from the United States, from Russia, and from Europe submitting experiments. So Julie, Mike, Bob, and I, Bob was the commander of the mission. We ended up with a very rigorous payload of experiments similar to the ones we would ultimately be doing in space. So it was a very reliable simulation. Interesting. So, well, you know, obviously the, the decade of the 90s, anybody who listens to the show knows that that's, that's the period of time when I was doing a lot of the work that I did with NASA. And and in fact, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Mike McKay, because Mike McKay was the, the other flight controller or quasi-flight controller that learned how to run uh, SVS uh, on orbit in the early days. He was my, he was my shift partner in, in mission control. Um, but it, I know it was it was interesting days at NASA um, as not only we started to talk about the International Space Station, but we we started um, NASA started figuring out that they really needed to work um, with Russia. Um, so along about the mid 90s, you you did end up at, at JSC and kind of ended up in the thick of that conversation as well. Yes, I was sent down to train as a mission specialist in 1995 and uh, went through my training in uh, about a year or so and was immediately assigned to the Neurolab mission. But around that time, George Abbey, when he stepped into his role as center director, really recognized the vision of inviting the Russians to be partners in the International Space Station program, underscoring the importance of the collaborative nature of what we do in space. But more importantly, the NASA Mir program gave NASA the opportunity to have some of the NASA astronauts experience long-duration spaceflight. And if you remember, the last time NASA had done a space station mission was back in the days of Skylab. So the lessons had been learned back then, but it was more important to try and get more 
recent current knowledge and understanding of what the long duration environment was all about. So NASA Mirror gave us that experience and all the American astronauts underscored the importance of what we would call expeditionary behavior, doing that behavioral training to optimize people's ability to live and work in space for long periods of time. And that that really was something very new, right? I mean, NASA had gotten very good at launching and recovering spacecraft in the form of the space shuttle. But but really, uh, the shift to living in space for long periods of time, I think, I think surprised even very experienced people at NASA about how much they really did have to learn and about how much the Russians really knew about that subject in particular. Well, you know, we know so much more now than we did back then. People used to talk about the space shuttle missions as a sprint, you know, a seven-day mm. sprint, a 14-day, 16-day sprint, whatever it is. Timeline is full of activities. We used to joke on orbit, and we talk about our PSA time, our post-sleep activity and our pre-sleep activity. We basically said that's post-science activity and pre-science activity <laughs> because we're so busy doing experiments yeah. in space. But one of the lessons that we've come to realize, having learned that on NASA Mir and also now on International Space Station, is these long-duration missions are not what we initially thought. They're not marathons. They're just long sprints. And oh, really? uh, Yeah. Particularly, you know, if you were to talk to uh, David Saint-Jacques or uh, Scott Kelly, uh, and Scott in particular, he was my commander on STS-118, so I've chatted with them a lot about this. You know, the one-year right. mission is like a one-year sprint. The timeline is always busy. Uh, even though you do have time off mentally, you're there, you've got to bring your best game every day because you really never know what's going to happen. Even during your time off, there could be a space station fire alarm that you have to deal mm. with. And mm. these are generally all false alarms, but still you've got to be on top of your game. So, so what's it like for the folks on the ground who are looking after the health and, and frankly, mental health of, of people who are on orbit for that length of time? I think many people who look at the space program think of the astronauts and they don't consider the thousands of people that support these missions. And I'm not under underemphasizing it. It truly, these, the number of people that are involved is measured in the thousands. It's re truly remarkable. And uh, for all the people that are on the ground supporting the mission, there's this tremendous sense of pride that they were involved in that process. You could talk to anyone in any area, whether it's scientific research, or whether it's in engineering, life sciences, et cetera. But if they were involved in the space station program, they look up into the skies at night, they see the space station go by, and they say, I was part of that. And that's remarkable. You know, I, I liken this to saying footsteps on the path to the moon and Mars, and that the people that were involved in the space station program, whatever role they had, enabled the astronauts to get the long duration experience that's going to take us farther down that path back to the moon and ultimately on to Mars. So thousands of people have footsteps on that path. Well, given given the opportunity, I intend to talk to them all eventually on this show. But but I agree, it, it is a constantly recurring theme. But but you know, I'm just interested as a physician uh, trying to manage other physicians who are caring for for folks that are in that situation. That's that's kind of a really interesting medical problem. 
The whole aspect of space medicine is quite unique. We deal with the delivery of medical care in partial gravitational environments and zero mm. gravitational environments. And uh, the Canadian Space Agency formalized a program within the astronaut office in space medicine in 1994. I was the first manager of that program. And in that role, I was very fortunate to be able to hire Jean-Marc Cantois, who became the first permanent uh, flight surgeon for the Canadian Space Agency. And Jean-Marc and I... Uh, worked together very closely. He was my flight surgeon on uh, two underwater missions, but also my flight surgeon in space and a truly incredible individual that really has culminated the knowledge that we have in space medicine in Canada to the point that we're internationally recognized as experts in space medicine. So, so how did flying change your perspective on managing the health of the crew on orbit once you were back on the ground? You know, there are many different aspects of flying. Uh, in Canada, in addition to Jean-Marc, we have Gary Gray and Joan Sari, both of whom are experts in the medical selection of astronauts. So as a physician in space, one of the ways we minimize the risk of illness in space is by rigorous selection standards to become an mm. astronaut and then to be assigned to a mission. And Gary and Joan and Jean-Marc have done a great job at that. But once we get into space, when you're a physician astronaut, by definition, you become the crew medical officer. And both, yes. yeah, both times I was in space, I ended up taking care of my colleagues. And that's not a, an unusual occurrence. You know, people end I up. Uh, it happens to you at family gatherings as well. <laughs> yeah. It can happen in situations like that. But the problems that we see, they're not life-threatening emergencies that I would typically see in the emergency department. They're common everyday situations that would arise and yep. potentially even arise on Earth. However, in space, we're also dealing with what we call space adaptation syndrome and how the mm -hmm. body adapts to being in space. We have to be able to provide the appropriate treatment for all these conditions. And so so after you've flown, does that help in 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 managing the crew health of the people who are on orbit is is like i guess what i'm getting at is as a physician does it really help to have had first person experience of that of that those things that you simply can't experience without having been on orbit there's no question, particularly if you're a flight surgeon sitting on console and uh, an astronaut in space has to start an intravenous. And this could be for scientific research purposes, or it could be to administer medication, whatever. If you're the flight surgeon and you've never done it yourself in microgravity, it makes yeah. it a little bit more difficult to communicate how to do it and answer questions. So for this reason, in the 1990s, we did a number of parabolic flights on the KC-135, you know, the infamous vomit comet. Yes. And we trained flight surgeons. We had a chance to develop, evaluate, and perfect all of these microgravity space medicine procedures. It sort of brings a new dimension to see one, do one, teach one, I guess. <laughs> it does. And uh, I found, you know, flying the T-38 simulator, the see one, do one, teach one model just doesn't work all that well. No. And no. uh, one of the great lessons from the space program to healthcare is the fact that you need a different model and you need more rigorous uh, training in simulators. Wow. So, so the other thing that you did once you came back from your first flight was was to decide to learn about space flight by going underwater. Um, how did you end up there? 
It's an interesting story. And again, it centers around George Abbey, who was center director at the time. And I think Mr. Abbey believed very strongly in the opportunity for international collaboration by inviting the Russians to join the program. But he also asked me to become the director of the Space and Life Sciences Directorate at Johnson Space Center. So for that to happen, Mac Evans, president of the Canadian Space Agency, had to work with Dan Golden, the the, uh, director, the administrator of NASA, to create an interagency agreement to essentially loan me to NASA for four years. And um, it was an amazing experience. But in my role as director of life sciences, Mike Gernhardt, one of the American astronauts, and Bill Todd, who was a sim soup at the time, a simulation supervisor, they came into my office and they said, we've got this amazing idea. And I said, well, what's that? And I said, how about if we use the Aquarius undersea research habitat as an analog for the space station and use that to train crews who haven't had an opportunity to go to space? It's a lot cheaper being able to payload that we would ultimately do in space, focusing on a wide range of different experiments that we could do on the habitat. So in 2001, we did the first mission to Aquarius. Uh, Bill, Mike, and I were part of the crew with Mike L.A., Mike Lopez Alegria. And uh, it was an amazing mission. It lasted seven days long. I had to go into Mr. Abbey's office and kind of say, well, I'm part of your senior team, but I'm actually going operational again. Are you okay with this? Yeah, yeah. He said, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, needless to say, the, um, the mission worked very, very well. And now, of course, we still continue using the Aquarius to prepare astronauts to go to space. Is that right? Well, tell, tell me about Aquarius. Most people, there are probably a lot more people who've seen videos of the inside of the space station than have seen the inside of Aquarius. You know, it's a really unique research platform. At the time when we first started using Aquarius, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, was running it. And uh, we, again, developed an interagency agreement between NOAA and NASA to be able to use this unique facility. It's really the only undersea research habitat in the world. And it's located off, yeah, it's off the coast of Key Largo, Florida, at a depth of around 60 feet or so. And um, once you go into saturation on the habitat, it takes you 17 hours of decompression to be able to come back to the surface. So needless to say, once you're down there, you're down there for a while. And that's, and that's about as long as it takes for, for um, uh, that's about as long as it takes for astronauts to get home from space station, actually, probably around the same amount of time. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, the similarities. But uh, we found that on those missions that it's a tremendously important platform for people to learn about things as fundamental as a timeline that we follow in space. It is mm-hmm. a uh, hostile environment. And back in the 60s, that amazing decade of exploring space, we were also exploring the other final frontier, the undersea worlds. So I've had the very great fortune to be able to explore both final frontiers. Wow. So um, so let me ask you uh, a Terranauts question. Uh, I am sure that you've had very memorable uh, moments in your career as an astronaut, but, but in your jobs on the ground, what are some of your favorite moments in the space program? I think for me, it's all about working with teams. And as director of life sciences at Johnson Space Center, I had an amazing team. I did work at NASA headquarters for about a year or so with uh, Joe Rothenberg, who was the associate administrator in the Office of Spaceflight. I was his deputy and got to know the headquarters team. But whether it was in Washington or whether it was at Johnson Space Center, the people you work with are absolutely incredible, as you know. I mean, you were part of that environment. You experienced this yourself. And you get people who are the best of the best all working together. It's pretty amazing. 
It's a running gag on this show that one of the ways to get to space is to go to a lot of meetings. <laughs> you know, we do have a lot of meetings. There's no question. And occasionally you'd arrive at a meeting and say, why are we here? What's the purpose of this meeting? But uh, I was really impressed with the effectiveness of the meetings. You know, we used to have what were called gassers, George yes. Abbey Saturday morning reviews. And again, Mr. Abbey was the only person in the space program globally that could bring together all the international partners for a four-hour meeting from eight in the morning on Saturday morning until noon. And this was Houston time. So you can imagine if you're in Moscow or if you're in Tokyo, you know, scuba in Japan, uh, it's a totally different time zone and things. But uh, those meetings were critical for enabling us to hit the target of uh, space station construction and put the first crew on the station in the year 2000. Some of my most vivid memories of meetings were ones that I had to go to in Houston at 5 a.m. so that we could talk to the Russians before they left for the day uh, in Moscow. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely one of the things that everybody had to get used to in an international uh, in an international arena. So let, let me just ask you. So another sort of you know, stock question. Uh, As someone who has worked on the ground helping people in space, but also as someone who's been there, um, what what as an astronaut do you, would you want to say to the Terranauts that are out there? First of all, I'd like to say thank you for doing such an incredible job. It's absolutely amazing when you're working in space with the hardware that's been developed on the ground. And of course, when we built the space station, the hardware was developed in different countries and brought together for the first time in space. And it worked flawlessly. When we installed the fifth uh, starboard truss element onto S4, it was unbelievable how seamless that was. We, We trained for years to be able to do it. And when we went out and did the space, spacewalk, everything worked the way it was supposed to. And that was a long spacewalk, right? It was a very long spacewalk. Uh, I had the opportunity to do a tethered egress about halfway through. But more importantly, you know, I think to me, it's a testimony of the dedication of these individuals around the world that were involved in the construction and now the utilization of the space station. It's just incredible what they've been able to do. Yeah. Yeah. So so we are living in a in a reasonably um, momentous time these days. We're recording this episode in the middle of the the COVID-19 uh, crisis in, in Canada. It's late, late April uh, 2020. Um, as a medical professional, as someone who's actually worked in, in medical um, executive management, you must uh, you must see a lot of people who are coping with this crisis. There's been a lot in the news about lessons that that space travel can teach us all for you know when we're isolating ourselves but but um you know what else do you think the the space business has taught us that is helping in uh, in these times of trial you know, it's a very tough time globally, and uh, we're so appreciative of the dedicated healthcare professionals, the teams of people in essential services that are allowing us to continue basically being able to uh, function. But more importantly, the lesson comes from my second spacewalk, where I was riding on the end of the Canadarm, you know, the Canadian flag on my left shoulder, as you can imagine, a very proud moment for a Canadian astronaut. But yeah. I'm looking at the Earth 
kind of beneath me, this four and a half billion year old planet upon which the entire history of the human species has taken place. And there's no borders evident between countries. You orbit the planet every 90 minutes and you realize that we're truly all together in this global village. And the lesson of the International Space Station program is a lesson of international collaboration. We could not have built the space station without that collaborative partnership between all of the nations involved in the space program. And the same is true today in dealing with this global pandemic. We're seeing tremendous international collaboration between researchers, between clinicians, collecting research data, sharing that data, searching for possible therapeutic interventions for COVID-19, searching for the possibility of a vaccine. And it underscores the importance of the fact that we have to share, we have to work together to collaborate to solve problems. And that, yes, we do live in a global village. And I think, too, you know, the lesson for me in, in the space program, as I as I frequently say on this show, I, I consider myself to be a pretty unexceptional person who just happened to end up uh, being a witness to and being being a part of some exceptional events. And I imagine there are lots of medical researchers and medical professionals um, that never expected um, to be essentially the heroes uh, that they are today, um, doing work that that literally um, you know millions of people will depend on, um, and they, you know, international situations like that uh, are great at bringing out the exceptional talents of people who who probably never thought that they were going to be exceptional, but they are. There's no question. And uh, now we're looking at many of these individuals in healthcare, many of these individuals involved in delivering essential services. And we're very appreciative of uh, what they've been able to do. We can't forget. We can't forget in the future when we start looking at salaries and salary discussions and the hours that these individuals work and things. You know, what's going on right now is uh, it's not been seen in the past hundred years. You know, back in the Spanish flu uh, pandemic, there might have been similar activity, but certainly what we're seeing today is quite unique. And the individuals involved, they are heroes. They don't think of themselves necessarily as heroes. They're simply going about doing their job to the best of their ability, which is what they do every Every day, not during, yes. not necessarily during pandemics. Uh, every day, these healthcare professionals are dedicated to bringing their best to caring for their patients, and I think we should all be very appreciative of their efforts. Well, I think that is an excellent way to end this episode. Um, I thank you for sharing your experiences about being a medical professional and an astronaut and a terranaut. Thanks for being on the show, Dave. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Terranauts. Thanks for joining us. A reminder that you can now find Terranauts on iTunes and other podcatcher apps for iOS and Android. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you have comments on the episode, you can email us at podcast at We read and answer all of your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada in Space and on Facebook. Thanks again for listening and join us again next time when we'll go to space without ever leaving the planet. Talk to you then. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.